Hey, uh, good morning, everyone. How you doing? My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads. I, you've probably seen me. I get to lead worship week in and week out. And I just want to say, first of all, it's rare that I get to sit out here while Greg is leading worship. And what an honor it is for you guys to have a man like that leading worship week in and week out. I also get to uh, head up the college ministry. And so this is a shameless plug. If any of you out there are post-high school, pre-30 really, I don't know. You can come if you're post-30. I don't care. I don't know. We want anyone to come. So we meet uh, Wednesday nights at the B-Shop. You're all welcome. We do worship. We do the word. We do fellowship, donuts, that kind of stuff. So, hey, before I get into it too much, um, there's one thing that kind of needs to be said, and it's good that everyone's here when I'm saying it, uh, and that is this, that February 21st and 22nd, Crossroads is having a marriage retreat. And um, last year, there was such an incredible turnout in this marriage retreat. There's over 100 couples that went on this thing, and everyone came back kind of saying the same thing, that it was awesome. And, um, and so we're aiming for that a little bit this year, too. And so far, there's just over 45 couples that have signed up. And we just want to say that uh, we want you to go. And so if there's any reason that you wouldn't go, let us know what that is. If it's financial, there's, there's scholarships available right on the website and everything, so... But you have until this Tuesday to sign up. All right? We all on the same page with that? Okay, so if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, you got to hear me preach for the first time ever on a Sunday morning. And I don't know, for you, it probably went like every other morning. You come to church, maybe you sit here for a while, you go home, you get some coffee, maybe you go to an early lunch or something. But for me, something amazing happened. Because I was sure that I was going to die as soon as I stepped onto this stage. (laughs) But I didn't, you know. uh, By God's grace, uh, the nerves kind of settled there for a second, and I was able to go on with it. And uh, just joking aside, I'm really honored to be here again this morning, and I look forward to opening up the Bible with you guys and, and seeing what God has to say to us this morning. Something that has become really clear to me as we've been going through uh, the book of Exodus is this. It's just how, how small I really am. And I think that everyone that would take this stage with the intent on preaching God's word would say the same thing, that I'm nothing. And that we are nothing. And that aside from the work of Holy Spirit in each one of us, there's nothing that we really have that we would be able to offer any of you. We're not set apart any more than any of you are set apart. In fact, there's multiple people in this room who are going to be used much more dynamically by God than any of us ever will. The truth is that God is looking for men and women that he can use, right? The scriptures say that the eyes of the Lord, they scan the earth and they're looking for people that want to go God's way, people that want to understand him and make it known to the world who he is. And I hope you see that. I hope that uh, you see that God wants to use you in his service. He wants to, uh, through the purifying blood of Jesus, cleanse you from ignoble things, things that disqualify you for his service, so that you might be used for noble purposes. And the reason that I bring this up today is because it's where we're heading this morning in our text. We're going to be looking at the establishment of something. We're going to be looking at a select group of people who come up out of the bondage of Egypt with all the others, but then they're set apart. 
They're willing to keep themselves for God, and in turn, they're selected by God to be used by God, to be his ministers, to be the ones that are, that are bringing atonement for the people. They're trying to get the people of God in right standing before him. And maybe that's where the stigma comes in, right? That only certain people can make a difference for the kingdom and be used by God. But we're also going to see then a high priest who comes, who outshines all the rest, who takes the intention of God to perfection. But it doesn't stop there. He then, he looks at his people and he wants to push all of that intention down onto his people. He wants to raise up a kingdom of priests. He wants to do it to every one of us, to you sitting there this morning in the chair. And I think that that's something that's oftentimes missed, that the average person who comes to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they miss out on that. They don't believe that they can then be used by God. They think, uh, forgiven? Yeah. Saved? Some days you feel that. But usable? No way, not even close. And it's the furthest thing from the truth. Let me just say that right off the bat. I'd say that it's a lie from Satan himself. He wants to keep you on the sidelines. He wants in your head for you to think that you cannot be used by God. But Rod talked about it a little bit last week, and I'm going to wrap today's sermon up by reiterating it. But God has placed in each one of us everything that is needed in order to complete the work that he has in mind. Ephesians 2 probably sums it up the best. It says that... um, We are God's handiwork. That you and I have been created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world in order to do what? Good works. We're created to work for God. To be used by God to accomplish what he has in his heart. And this is where the Exodus story comes in. Because it's the same thing just at the outset what God is desiring for the Israelites. He wanted them to be his workers. He wanted them to be his ministers. That's why he's calling a people. He's selecting a nation to be his own. That's why he's calling the Israelites to come up the mountain in uh, Exodus chapter 20, or Exodus 19. He's wanting to commission the entire people to be ministers for him. But we've seen uh, how that's worked out. We've seen that the people got scared and they didn't... They weren't willing to go up. They, they, they heard the thunder. They felt the earthquake. They saw the fire. They could smell the smoke, all of that stuff. And they said, hold on, if we go up there, we're going to die. And so they send up this guy Moses as their representative for them. And in a way, they miss out on two miraculous opportunities. The first opportunity that they miss out on is they miss out on standing in the raw, real presence of God. It says that Moses went up the mountain and for 40 days he was in the presence of God. Can you imagine uh, being there in the presence of God and then uh, 40 days is over and you got to go back down the mountain to reality? It's probably kicking and screaming, right? But they also missed out on the opportunity to be God's force in the world for good. They miss out on the opportunity to be his ministers. But God wants ministers. And so it leaves you asking as you read the story, where are they? Who are they? A few chapters later in the story, uh, we know that Israel has given themselves over in idolatry to this golden calf. And 
at that time, uh, a select group of the Israelites. So a select group out of the whole selected group is chosen to be ministers of God. And Moses says to the Levites, today you have been set apart by the Lord. And that setting apart was the establishment, it was the birth of the Levitical priesthood. These are men who did not indulge in the revelry of their their brothers who gave themselves over to the worthless idols. These are men who were undefiled. And because they were undefiled, they were willing and, and able to be used by God. And there's an entire sermon right there in that alone. And God, right in this moment, he changes the course of the Israelites' lives. He's going to shape the way that their day-to-day goes about, centered around these men working for him. And so I think we need to spend some time there. We need to really look into the priesthood and see what it has to do with us instead of just skipping over some of these chunks of our Bible. We're going to be doing that this morning by breaking the priesthood kind of into three aspects. The first aspect is the priesthood as it's laid out in Exodus uh, chapter 28 and 29. In Exodus, we find the high priesthood established. God prescribes a way for a nation of Israel to be able to contain the presence of God. And it was going to be through the work, again, of regular men. The second aspect is Jesus as our great high priest. We're going to fast forward into the New Testament to see what it has to say about followers of Christ and how the priesthood should be affecting their day to day. And the third aspect we're going to look at is is you and I as a, a kingdom of priests, as a priesthood of believers. Multiple times in the New Testament, the chosen people of God are referred to as a kingdom of priests. And that should have a lot to do with how you and I live each day. That should have a lot to do with how the world sees us. So we're going to get going right into that, uh, Exodus chapter 28. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5, as well as verses 4 through 9 in chapter 29. And so as you're flipping through your pages, uh, finding it in your Bibles, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? So chapter 28, verse 1. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron, for his consecration, so that he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they're to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They're to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarns and fine linen. Okay, jump over the page, uh, verse 4 of 29. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe, the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem, which says, uh, Holy to the Lord. 
Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and fasten caps on their head. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by lasting ordinance. This is God's word. You guys can have a seat. So maybe, uh, maybe you remember a few months ago, we did an entire series on, on the priesthood. And we looked at how, uh, starting with Adam, running throughout the entire Bible, all the way pushing it to Christ, we saw priests. And that should give you a clue about uh, something. Though the priesthood is laid out in Exodus uh, chapter 28 here, what it means to be a priest is much bigger than that. What it means to be a priest isn't putting on robes or anything like that. What it means to be a priest is bigger. It's found in the garden. You probably remember that Neil had us all, uh, I don't know, maybe you don't remember, but he had everyone kind of sketch what they had in their head as a picture of a priest would be. And then he actually took pictures of it and put it on the screen. Well, we're not going to do that, but there is an image here on the screen of kind of what a priest would look like. If you type in on Google, priest, this is what comes up, right? So pretty typical. You guys have probably thought about that in one way or another. But let's forget that for a moment, all right? Really, what is a priest? How would you define a priest? How would you describe a priest? Not what it says on his paycheck or the robes that he puts on, but how would you define it? I was kind of searching for that. I was preparing for today, and I found a definition um, from the Dictionary of Bible Themes. And it says that a priest was a group of men charged with the responsibility of mediating between God and the people of God, ensuring proper worship and maintaining the spiritual health of the people of God. And I like this definition because of the, the context where we find it given in our Exodus story. Because there's some serious contrast in that definition and what's actually happening here in Exodus. The context is this. Israel is in need of a mediator. Because they've been blowing it. If we're going to keep using the the marriage illustration that Rod has been using, um, what's happening here is that God is offering himself to be a husband to these people. And the people, as a bride, have said, yes, I'll take you. And I get to do weddings, and one of my, you know, I think every pastor has their favorite part of a wedding ceremony, and mine is really the vows, when you have a man promising things to a woman, right? And with hundreds of people there, you you should be able to hold that man to those promises that he's making. And the vows that we typically use for crossroads end uh, by saying, with all that I am, with all that I have, I give myself to you. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what's going on here. But can you imagine, can you imagine being seated at the ceremony and seeing two people say that to each other? And then an hour and a half later, you're at the reception and you, you get up to go to the bathroom and you see down a hallway the bride with another man. That's what's happening here in our story. And it should leave you saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, they are going to need someone to stand in the gap for them. They're going to need someone to be a mediator in this marriage. They're going to need someone to hear both sides and to bring them back together. 
They're going to need someone to make sure that that worship in this nation continues to happen the way that God has prescribed it. We're going to need someone to ensure that the spiritual health of the nation remains strong. And it's here in maybe the the darkest moment of Israel's history, in the midst of their, their greatest shame, God does something that's extremely gracious. He looks ahead at the years of adultery uh, to, that are to come. He knows the gap of history that's going to fall between the giving of the law and the fulfillment of the law. And he makes a way for atonement to be made for the people's sin. He makes a way for the people to draw near to him. And that language shouldn't sound uh, too foreign to us. We've been looking uh, at how God the whole time has been in the business of making a way when there was no way, right? Just like the plagues in Egypt were a way to break Israel free from the grip of Pharaoh. And just like the parting of the sea was God's way for thrusting Israel out of that bondage of Egypt, the priesthood is now the way by which God is prescribing that a sinful people can draw near to a sinful God. Sinless God, sorry. And we, all we have to do is turn the page to uh, end of chapter 29, and we can see that that's God's intention. God says to Aaron, to Moses, See, I'm going to consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I'm going to consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And I'm going to dwell among the Israelites and I'm going to be their God, and they're going to know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I'm going to be the Lord their God. In essence, what he's saying is this, Aaron, you need to follow my ways. You need to be sure that you do everything that I've commanded you. Because you and your sons, you're to be the example of holiness to the rest of the people. And if you follow my ways, if you listen to my instructions, then I'm going to dwell among you. It should blow us back a little bit. What? I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to make my home right in the center of your camp. It's amazing. He's going to be with them. God, he's longing to dwell with his people. But it's going to take those people following his ways as he's laid them out. And what's great is that he tells us what his ways are. He's not leaving us to figure that out. And so what are those ways? What are the instructions that God lays out for the priests, for the people? Really, there's hundreds of them, right? There's hundreds. The book of Leviticus contains rules um, and regulations for the people of God. And the one responsible for keeping those laws, for making sure that others keep them as well, is the priest. But our passage today gives us a different look at these these laws. The rules in Leviticus show us just the, the massiveness, the vastness of God, how he wants to intercept every single step of your day. And our text today shows us uh, the detail the intimacy of Jesus, working his way out in this law. It goes into incredible detail to show that God himself is right there at the heart. And it's shown, it's shown in distinction. 
That's what Exodus 28 is. That's what it's saying. The priest needs to be distinct. And just like the law, there are hundreds of distinctions that are laid out in Scripture that have to do with what a priest can eat, what a priest can drink, where a priest can live, who a priest can marry. But what we see right here in our text is a greater distinction than those. The priest is to be dressed from head to toe with the finest, the most expensive clothing that any of them have ever seen, maybe except for what Pharaoh wore. You might remember that as uh, the Israelites were leaving Egypt, God says to them, hey, go next door and ask your neighbor for everything good that they have. And in that way, you are going to plunder the Egyptians. You're going to walk out of their country with their gold, with their silver, with their finest linens. And then God says that these are the very things that you need to use to build me a house. And these, these treasures are the things that you need to use to make clothing for my ministers. It says in verse 3 of chapter 28 that God even gave special wisdom to a few people in order to make those garments. It wasn't just someone threw them all together. It's God-given wisdom to make these garments. And I wonder if you can close your eyes what you picture when you picture them. You don't have to. We have a picture of them, actually. Uh, again, if you just Google search the priestly garments, or if you just, I think this is from the ESV study Bible, so maybe you have a study Bible. Uh, I love that people, artists are just doing renderings of what these things look like, because it's so foreign to us, right? But hopefully something that you can see there is the distinction that he would have. From a mile away, you'd be able to tell that the guy wearing these is special, that he's set apart, that he's different from the rest. And he doesn't just look pretty. Think about this. The high priest who wore this would have been uh, noticeable by three different senses. You saw him. You saw the beauty of his clothing. It says that it's to give him dignity and honor and beauty. You could see him and tell that he's set apart. But not only that, as he walked, you might know that the bottom of the robe has, uh, has bells on it. So every step he took, the chiming of the bell. So even if you couldn't see him, you could hear that he's coming near. And if you couldn't see him, if you couldn't hear him, you'd be able to smell him. Right? It says that he was anointed with oil. Psalm 133 gives this kind of uh, description. It says that the oil is poured over Aaron's head. And it's not just a little bit, it's running. It says it runs down through his beard. And then it hits the collar of his robe and it flows over the collar. He's wearing too much perfume, right? You'd be able to smell this guy anywhere. But all of these things together, the sight, the sound, the smell, it's doing something to the people that are around him. And as he walks, the very aura of God himself is there. He's set apart. He's holy. He's ready to be used for God's service. But I don't want to just make mention of all those things and fly over the detail that's in chapter 28. We really need to be looking and reading our Bibles because it's in verses that oftentimes we skip over that, that life is found, that God is really found there. 
And so I want to lift two small uh, points from our text today, two small descriptions of what this guy is wearing. The first one is the ephod. It's not really a word that we're familiar with. Uh, the ephod was a, an elaborately woven article of clothing worn on the outside of a floor-length tunic under the breastpiece. If you can put that picture back up, you can kind of see uh, it's the thing that goes maybe to his knees. It's kind of like an apron, right? There's mentions of the Bible, or there's mentions of an ephod other places in the Bible, not just here in Exodus, not just here for the high priest. We know that David wore a linen ephod as he, as he danced before the Ark of the Covenant as it's making its way back into uh, Jerusalem. And uh, a guy named Gideon, he actually takes some metal and he fashions an ephod, kind of like armor. And he sets it up in a shrine and people come and worship it. That's what these things were known for, their beauty. But the high priest's ephod, the one that you see, it's in a class of its own. This one is made of actual gold. Gold that is hammered so finely that it's able to be woven into the rest of the material. It's got blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Each one with its own beauty. Each one as it stands alone is a sight to see. Each one has its own significance. The gold that is woven in there, it represents the glory of God. Did you know that everything that's in the most holy place has to be overlaid with gold? Because the gold gives off the sheer glory of God. The blue there represents the deity of God, the Godheadness of God. The purple represents the, the royalty of God, that God is the king of kings. And the scarlet that is woven in there, it's, it's meant to look like blood. Showing that it's only by blood that, God, that you can draw near to God. And when these four colors are brought together in this ephod, they're there to show the Israelites just who this high priest was serving. Without any words, you should be able to look at this man and see that he is serving the God of all glory. The God of gods the king of kings, the king of this kingdom who's just in his judgments, who, who punishes the wicked but spares the righteous, who makes a way for you to draw near to him. And the priest needs to know this. Every time the priest would put this thing on, he's being reminded of all that. But the people need to see this too. They need to be able to, just by looking at this man, see God. They need to be able to look upon the Lord's anointed one and see the very holiness of God himself. The second thing that we can lift off the text is, uh, it's called a breast piece. Again, not really a thing that we're familiar with. Maybe we can bring a breast piece back in 2014, but I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. The breast piece is, it's a square uh, woven thing on his chest there. And, uh, it's made out of the same, the same colors. It's made out of the gold. It's made out of the blue, the purple, the scarlet. But it goes a step further. The breast piece is decked out with 12 uh, semi-precious stones, each stone containing the name of one of the tribes of Israel. It's got three columns of four rows each. And the reason that this should jump out at us, the reason that this is amazing, is because... Every time the high priest 
would make his way to God. He would bear the names of the people of God on his chest and on his shoulders. Every time he entered the Holy of Holies, he bore the names of God's covenant people on his chest. He reminded God of the promise that was made to these people, that they were his prized possession. When he goes to make atonement, you can picture him saying, Ah, God, remember Benjamin. Remember Naphtali. Remember Issachar. Don't, God. You promised. You love them. They're your people. No one else in the entire community could wear garments like these. And no one else had the responsibilities that this guy had. And the priest, he for sure was to be distinct. He was to be set apart by God to do the work of God. He was dressed in clothes that gave him dignity and honor and beauty in order to point to the one who alone is worthy of dignity and honor, to the beautiful one. He was to intercede for the people of God by bringing their names before the Almighty. He was to bring the sacrifice before God to make atonement for the people. And hopefully some gears are running in your head already. It doesn't take much to see where this whole thing is heading. In the same way that the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness was called a shadow of the one in heaven, the priesthood that is given alongside of it is a shadow of a priest who is to come. A new priest, a priest unlike all the rest, one who would carry out all of God's requirements perfectly and in doing so, be the only one in history who is really able to make atonement for the sin of the people. Because we have a sinless priest sent by the Father to make a way for the people. And if the priesthood is the way that God prescribed for people to be able to draw near to him, then we today need to be asking some questions. And luckily, again, we're not left to our own imagination at what the answers to these questions are. The Bible answers them for us. And the first question that uh, we need to ask isn't necessarily, who is our high priest? We'll get to that. There's a question that needs to come before that. And that question is, do we need a priest? Think about that. Do you today need a priest? Do you need a mediator? Are you in need of someone to ensure that worship is happening the way that it should? Are you in need of someone to to help maintain the spiritual climate of your life? And hopefully uh, you're thinking yes. The right answer here is yes, you do. Hebrews uh, 9 says that when everything in the tabernacle had been arranged perfectly, the priest, he entered uh, regularly into the outer room to carry on his ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. Verse 22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the blood, there's no forgiveness. Today, um, you and I, we're in need of that. We're in need of that forgiveness. We're in need of that blood. Just like the Israelites who were caught red-handed worshiping this idol, we're in need of forgiveness. 
you and I, we've committed adultery in our hearts at some point in our lives, whether in the past or maybe even right now in this room, you have something in your heart set up as God before the living God. And it keeps us from the presence of God. And without being cleansed by the blood, there would be no forgiveness. There would be no access to him. But just like God had a gracious plan for the Israelites, God is still gracious. He has a gracious plan for us. He's given us a high priest. He's made a way for us to find forgiveness, not in the blood of bulls and goats and other sacrifices that need to be made over and over and over and could never really bring the justification that's needed. He has given himself as a means for our forgiveness. He's sent his son to be the final, to be the enduring high priest who brings the sacrifice for sin. He's given us Jesus. Jesus is our our great high priest, and he is the way to the Father. In fact, Jesus himself says, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. But it's not just forgiveness that this high priest is able to offer us. Jesus offers so much more than that just in who he is. He is a high priest. He lives to make intercession for us all. Just as the high priest would bear the names of the people of God before God as he made his way to him, Jesus brings our names to the Father. Jesus himself says that if any of you acknowledge me, if any of you confess my name to the world, I will confess your name. I will bear your name before my Father who's in heaven. And the scriptures say, they give this picture of the Messiah who's to come. And they say that the Messiah will have engraved on the palms of his hands our names. No longer worn on a a chest piece, but engraved on his hands. And he's a high priest who, scriptures say, that he lives to make intercession for us. That right now, Jesus is alive and he's bringing our names before the Father. Jesus is also the true tabernacle in which is found the full presence of the glory of God. The presence of God and the nearness of God, they're no longer reserved for only a high priest once a year. But we, as Hebrews 4.16 says, are able to approach with boldness the mercy seat of God. The very throne We hear it a lot, but what does it mean? That the veil has been torn. Jesus has made a way for you and I to enter in because of the blood that he shed. He's also the perfect sacrifice. He stood in our place. We deserve to die the death that he died. We deserve the punishment for sin that we've committed. But Jesus, he bore the wrath. Jesus provided the blood that brings forgiveness for sins. And more than that, it doesn't only bring forgiveness, it brings salvation, it brings justification, it brings new life, regeneration in us. And it's only Jesus' blood that has that power, the true power, not only to cleanse us on the outside, but to give us life from the inside out. Jesus is our priest. He's our mediator. He's the go-between. And there's no longer any man who is able to bear our sins before God. First Timothy says that there's one God 
And there's one mediator between man and God. It's the man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for a ransom for everyone. And if you're finding yourself today always needing to trust in a human to bring intercession or to make a way for you, you're trusting in a lesser thing. We have the perfect one. We have Jesus who's right now seated at God's right hand, who's clothed in glory. And he doesn't need the garments of a high priest as laid out in Exodus. We never find Jesus uh, decked out in that. Jesus is distinct. He's set apart for sure, but the distinction, it's not in robes of gold and of blue and of purple and of red. The priestly garments that Jesus wears, right there. The thing that sets Jesus apart the thing that makes Jesus distinct is he's the only one that has ever been able to bear in his scars your sins. In the same way that the priest, he's only able to make atonement after he's dressed and presentable to God, Jesus was able to make atonement for us, for the sins of the world, once he'd gone through the punishment of God, the wrath of God bearing that sin on the cross. So therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. And what can it mean for you and I to, to hold firmly to this faith that we profess? For sure, it means that as the world around us gets darker and darker, we must cling to the eternal word of God as our source of truth, as a beacon of light. We must walk in the promises that God has made in his scriptures. But more than that, we need to be the ones that are reminding each other of the promises that God has made. And one of those promises that we should be talking about more often than we do is that you and I, because of the work of Christ, are now to be a kingdom of priests. We are to be distinct. We are to be set apart. We are a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2 says, as you come to him, as you, as you make your way to the living stone, who's been rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to God, you also like living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're to be that priesthood. We are to be distinct to a watching world. We're to be offering pleasing sacrifices to God. Romans 12 says that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to him. We should be the ones who are interceding for the children of God and, and making it easy for people to come to God. We are God's workers. He looks at us and he says, you're capable of it. You're not perfect. You're not like having this holier-than-thou attitude, but we're equipped. And I said it at the beginning, but some of us, we just don't understand that. We don't know that. You don't know that you're a royal priesthood 
that you're a holy nation, that you are God's special possession, his treasured possession. But again, God says in his word that his, his divine power has given us everything that we need in order to live out a godly life. The Father has given the very spirit of our great high priest. He's given us the spirit of Jesus to be with us forever. And we forget that sometimes. If you're like me, you've probably found yourself longing for the presence of God as it's described in the Old Testament. And we forget that we have something better than that. Not better than the presence. It's the same presence. But we have that presence living inside of us. Greg mentioned a few weeks ago that at any moment during the 40 years as these guys are wandering through the desert, all you had to do was maybe look over your shoulder and what's there? The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, the very presence of God. You just looked over your shoulder and you saw his Shekinah glory right there in the midst of your camp. But the thing that they uh, were in danger of is, you know, after... 10 years, after 15 years, that thing could have just been like the crack on your living room wall that really bothered you for the first three weeks that it was there. But now it's been 20 years and you've never done anything about it and you barely even notice it. See, the danger is the same for us. That when we come to place our trust in Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But we forget that. We forget that he's promised to be with us forever. We forget that he said that he would never leave us as orphans, but that he would give us his very presence. And so maybe this morning what we need is a reminder. A reminder that we are the holy of holies. That we are the very place that God has chosen to dwell. Ephesians 1.13 says that you're included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe, you are marked In him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So I think there's a little bit of talk. Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Have you been given the Holy Spirit? Scripture's really clear that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit. It is alive and well in you. Maybe it's going to take me saying it to you. Maybe it's going to take your friend saying it to you. Hold on, you've got Christ in you. The hope of glory. So while in our heads, again, we have a certain picture of a priest, right? You can bring that slide back up. This is what our heads we have as a priest. But what does God have in mind? When God closes his eyes in his, in his, his mind's eye, what does he see as a priest? I think it's different than this. I think that's what God's priests look like. And I think, or I'm hoping that you're seeing someone that you recognize. I'm hoping that you see yourself, or that you see your mom or dad or a house church leader. God's looking for men and women that he can use. He's looking for those who are willing to go up the mountain towards him, to stand in his presence, and to be commissioned as his ministers. And so this morning, if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, you need to stop looking at the stage for that person. You need to stop looking to your left and to your right. 
Because it's you. You are the ministers. Let's pray. I just sense, even as I say that, people are saying, no, I'm not. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through that this morning. That you would be a testimony in each one of us, rising up in us, of the work that you've done. That you would remind us that, that you've saved us, that you've, you've done your work in us in order to cleanse us to be used by you. God, I pray that you would enable us to put to death the things of the flesh, the things that tie us down, the things that, that make us look just like the world, and that we would daily put on Christ, our distinction. Do your work this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.